chapter one. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to me. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. This one, this one's like kind of hippy dippy, no sulfates, so I might suggest the other one. Yeah, yeah, you need sulfates in your water. This is becoming a theme of my podcast, it's just getting progressively more <laughs> shit based during it. This is adding rich, rich texture to your podcast. All those little noises. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. How'd it go today for the guys? Well, painfully close for Talansky. Yeah. 
It's not the first time. He was either. an angry boy at the finish, wasn't he? Yeah. He's got a lot of fighting spirit. How do you handle it, like, as a director? Like, I, I, because I'm a complete egomaniac, I can't look at any situation without immediately putting myself in it. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't, I'm conflicted, like, the, the false bravado in me wants to say that I would see him, like, and I like Talansky, so I say this with all respect, like, uh, throwing a bit of a tantrum, yeah. and the, the, the bravado in me thinks that, like, oh, I would clip him behind the air and tell him to stop being a baby but that's <clears throat> probably not the best way to handle it well you know he's got a strong character mm. and that's that's also what makes him a good athlete that kind of fighting spirit yeah he's a bit of a Bernardino you know yeah and uh, I don't think you should uh, try and sort of sterilize the riders that you work with in, in general you know to try and get them all to fit into a box. No. So, you know, I mean... It's almost... It, it's a very Belgian thing, is to get everybody to fit in. Our, like, yeah, and, and it, in, I think in Italy, too. Yeah. And like, very kind of tight constraints. You spend a lot of time in Italy. Yeah, like most of my career. Most of it. You know, like, your director would come and tell you to get a haircut if you thought it was getting too long, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... I think people give the best of themselves when they're allowed to be themselves to a degree, you know, and express themselves a bit. Do you so. worry about that? I mean, how far can you go, though, before, like, a swan gets hit with a helmet and you have to kind of... Well, that that wasn't the case. Oh, no, 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 that didn't no. happen. I'm just saying, like... Yeah, but like... It's, it's not a... It's a character trait, and it's not a horrible character trait. No. But it's not necessarily, like, one that you want to encourage either. No, 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 no. I mean, obviously, in, in any in any work situation, especially one where people live very close together like they do yeah. in a cycling team, yeah. there's going to be kind of moments and of they've tension. Pro- they've probably seen this, and they know that it's going to blow over. And Yeah, I mean, this, this isn't really anything. This is just like... It's not even real life. <laughs> no, it's just push bike racing, you know I mean? Jeez. But obviously, you know, like, everybody's got to fit into a sort of uh, society in a way, you know? Yeah. And get on with each other, so... I think it goes pretty smoothly most of the time. When the, when did you get to Italy? I went to Italy in uh, the autumn of 99. Kind of on your own, yeah? No, there was the, the worlds were there. Because I was first Verona. in... Yeah. I was first in France as, did like... Did you were under 23? Yeah. I did the juniors that year. Yeah. And uh, that was when I signed my first contract that autumn with in Italy, with Mappé. Oh, man, that must have been amazing. It was hardcore, yeah. Yeah? yeah. You just completely... Because, ah, like, uh, that year I was winning a lot in Europe and I was, like, one of the one of the good ones, you know? Yeah. But the phone never rang until, like, all through August... I didn't know of any professional team that even knew what my name was. And then I rode the Trans-Canada race, which I think they only did it once or twice. Mm, yeah, Matt I would come to that, yeah? Yeah. And I was with Linda McCartney, and I was just waiting to do my warm-up for the time trial, and this guy comes and taps me on the shoulder and asks me for my phone number, and it was a guy from Matt Bay. Did you know it at the time? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was for some like amateur team or sure. genius team or something. And then it went really quickly, but so I went from having like no interest in me to 
like the big the biggest team in the world at the time so. did yeah. you know do you remember who that guy was like do you know Serge Passani Serge Passani yeah I remember that name yeah so um, I mean, how many guys, that was before the UCI put a crackdown on roster limits yeah so that was like yeah. some years Mapa would have like 40 some odd we riders. had 42 riders the first year it was hardcore I mean what was that must have been it's like the wild west when you're going to training camp yeah, yeah, yeah. you should have seen the traffic jams we made at training camp when we would went. everybody ride together or one, one, one day every year at training camp they'd have like a note there was no power meters then they just had heart rate monitors sure and one day at the end of the training camp they were banned on the training ride so it was just a free for all everybody's just going for it and like 42 riders out together massive just traffic jams each other. like just the best riders in the world they're just going at it hammer and tongs it was amazing. Did you know, like, in that moment, like, that I'm living something unique? Or was this... Because, you know, like, I look back at things when I was younger and, like, full of ambition. Yeah. And I, d I was so afraid of looking like a newbie that yeah. I wouldn't even allow myself to, to take some stuff in. Yeah, yeah. I think there's definitely an element of that. And when you're young and ambitious, you... you you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're thinking about what's next on the list, you know? Yeah. Where am I after next and what am I going to do and like, got to keep on moving and you don't really soak things up, you know? Do you put that, like we say the next thing to do, do you put that list up in front of you or was that a list that somebody put up in front of you? No, it's nothing that anybody ever put. But, uh... What did like, the 20, 22, 23 year old Charlie Wigelius on map by like what was hitting the next on his list what was that thing the, 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 the thing I wanted to do was to get a second contract to prove it because I you know like every it's easy to get in you know mm, mm, yeah a, a team manager well easy relatively a team manager can have a roll of a dice you and say a oh, we'll give this guy a chance try and sell some cement in England you know yeah but the second contract is a yeah that's good that means that like you actually did something that was worthwhile to someone yeah so that was like my first thing you know yeah so uh no I, I definitely remember because when I got picked up by this uh, postal yeah I definitely remember thinking how embarrassing it would be if I didn't get renewed yeah straight in and straight out yeah just long enough to get a cup of coffee yeah that was pick up your kit and then <laughs> and then go it's hard because it was hard then because I was I'm such a fan of cycling I think yeah. it's a brilliant element to it that even after 15 years now, I can't quite put my finger on yeah I think there's a little fan in all of us though isn't there I mean you have to be yeah I think you have to be even more but I think there's a certain amount of I like ironic distance that riders try to put off between them and the sport. Mm. They try to come off like they're way, they're better, they're cooler than the sport. Yeah. And I, I kind of regret that because they come off maybe looking down on other riders or taking them, taking the piss out of other riders when yeah. really we're. You know, I, I think cycling is just like a kind of big school playground. Yes. You know, there's, yes. and if you look in, if you look at the peloton, you can see it. Yeah, you know, like there's the cool kids, and then there's the kids who smoke, and then there's the nerdy kids with their SRMs, and you know, like there's there's everything there. Yeah, and it's really like a kind of like a little society like that, with all its kind of cruel little rules that the yeah, because bike riders can be shits to one another, you know. 
however. But it's also, I think it's like a kind of sport in a way that kind of teaches you to exist, you know? We're cool to each other in the same way that we're cool to each other on the playground. It's Everything's yeah. based off of insecurity. Yeah, like a big food chain. Yeah. It's nobody... I've always... Because, you know, I've been on both sides, yeah? Mm. So I've been on the Pro Tour side and the Division Three side. Mm. And then somewhere in the middle of the Division Two guys are lost in the fold. But yeah. really, that's the two polarities. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'll never forget how many times... You know... There's like an incident in the group, mm. touch of wheels or something, and then you know people give like a little look through the corner of their eye and see what color the jersey is before sure, they before, sure. before they, react. they freak out. Yeah. yeah, and in Europe, if you ride for a more Vita, you're always going to get blamed sure. for any kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. comeuppance in the group, yeah. and it's totally unfair. But like that's it's, it's the food but chain. Here, but I also bl- blame the Division Three guys because like, you only you're only treated how you allow people to treat you. Yeah, yeah. So, I remember a few years ago in uh, Tour California. Mm. Maybe it was when you were running for United. Yeah. There. 2011. And it's just always like, these guys want to take the piss out of me because I was on Kelly. Yeah. And I think if you just reacted extremely quickly and with extreme confidence. Yeah, yeah. It's just like at school, though, isn't it? Yeah, you, you had to let people know. Like, I remember uh, one day, I just got in the dumbest breakaway in the history of the sport. Hmm. It was a, one day, it was like 200K, like maybe 180K of it was 1% downhill into a headwind. It was just, and I wasn't even supposed to be in the breakaway as one of my teammates. Typical. <laughs> so I was, I did maybe 5,000 kilojoules in four hours. And it was just the dumbest, and I was, I'm pissed the whole break. Hmm. We get caught maybe 200 meters before uh, a crosswind. Yeah. So by sheer luck, I'm in great position. Yeah. And uh, and I don't want to be the guy who opens the uh, the gap. The gap. Yeah. So I'm 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 not gonna open this gap. And the guy in front of me opens the gap. Yeah. Who wasn't in the early break. Yeah. And I mean I sure the fuck can't close the gap. So yeah. I swing out too. And Lawrence Tendam yells something at me and gives me the finger. Yeah. So in that moment, I take a water bottle and I throw it and I bounce it off his neck. And then I find him after the finish. Yeah. And it sounds really harsh, but I think there's a certain amount of, like, you have to do this to people. Yeah. You have to let them know that, like... They always say, like, oh, what happens in the course stays in the course. Yeah. But I kind of feel like that's bullshit. I feel like that's a cop-out. You know who says that? Is the bullies. Yeah. It's never the people who are picked on who say, ah... Yes, yeah. it's, it's fuck it. Ah, oh, fuck it. He didn't really mean it. He was just in the moment. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, nah. that's true. That's what I hate about these races: is these huge well, di- yeah. dining halls. You know, when you're a rider, because yeah. the guy that you're always like yeah, locking yeah, horns yeah. with, he's always the one you bump into at the at the French toast queue or whatever. You know, <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's always the same guy. Do you, you, don't, you don't know whether to say hello to him. What do you do him? in that moment? Do you acknowledge it or do you just let oh, it go? It's that, it's that whole eye contact thing. It's like, oh, I didn't see him. Oh. I feel like you have to, in that moment, you really have to own it, though. You really have to, like, yeah. take it upon yourself to say, hey, man, how's it going? And, like, I found a new strategy, Charlie. This is my strategy. There's a, there's a guy you don't get on with. Yeah. Everybody around this guy, you become best mates with. <laughs> 
the pincer movement. Mm. <laughs> it's divide and conquer. Yeah. And you you make it so whenever your name comes up and he wants to take the piss. All his friends. All his friends go, you know, I, I kind of like that. I think he's a little misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, it's, That's interesting. It's incredibly uh, manipulative and psychopathic and not a healthy way to think, but I, I, I'm not sure if I can get around it right now. Try that with the sports directors when you get going. How is it? I'm, gonna, I'm about to be a sports director, Charlie. Give me some tips. Never use your turn signals. That's just a sign of weakness. <laughs> My mechanic, when I started, he says to me, because you know that uh, your mechanic, he's like... He's a sage? Yeah. And if you're good to them, they'll teach you the job. Yeah. And if you're bad to them, they'll just sit How and watch you. How can you be you. good or bad to the mechanic? What kind of... You've got to be respectful of them and take them seriously, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because they sit in those cars a long time. I mean, a lot of them, I think, could. They've seen a lot of shit. They yeah. could be directors in their own right, maybe. Yeah, if they wanted to. Yeah, a lot. Of them. And uh, my mechanic said, if I wanted to be a good sports director, I had to be Tony Montana. And I had no idea who he was. And I had to come go on, and, really? Yeah, I had to look him up on uh, on the YouTube. Have you seen the movie yet? No, I've seen it. No. Yeah. So what do you think of the movie? Oh. It's a bit eighties. Yeah, but eighties is nice. Yeah. So you gotta be a bit Tony Montana. Don't use your turn signals. Yeah. But there's a food chain there too, you know. So you gotta be cool. When, but I mean, you went straight into Garmin, like considerable. When we're talking about the the schoolyard of cycling, mm. what do you think Garmin fits in there? Between <laughs> the bullies, the jocks, the nerds. Maybe with like the fashion. Uh, kids making their own clothes or something I don't you're know you're the mods yeah maybe yeah I don't know I think we're definitely quite cool though yeah I think so mm. you don't seem convinced I think there's definitely an element of some guys on the team that I look at and I I, I could see a bit of a bit of the mod culture mm. I, and I appreciate it mm. there's definitely another element of the team where I see the very uh self-conscious nerd trying to make up for it with uh, convincing everybody getting his mom to buy him a pair of expensive uh, yeah mums. I guess it's not fair to do, to uh, put your team as one big face because there are there, no no it's pretty multifaceted I think it's got a soul our team yeah yeah I think so how much is, I mean Waters is obviously a big signal for that or is a big force for that. yeah yeah He's just, hey, did the podcast with him, and I, I'm really happy that he did it first, because uh. he lended a bit of credibility to it, and yeah. it's incredibly awkward to ask somebody to do a podcast, you know, because yeah. it doesn't, it's just a stupid word like podcast, it doesn't make, because mm. I, I don't have the balls to say interview. Or an interview. Yeah, an interview, because <laughs> I'm not a journalist, and I don't have a radio show. But uh, I almost regret having him first because I feel like I didn't. I feel like I couldn't really challenge him on a lot of stuff because he's yeah. He's a he's a he's an interesting guy, Waters. I I mean I was. 
he was my boss for a few years. He's been mm. my teammates for years. I haven't quite figured him out. <laughs> he's a. I've been and I've been active. I think he. I think he'd like that. You think that you haven't figured him out yet? What 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 am I missing with Vars? What I don't know. I haven't, I haven't figured him out either. Because sometimes he could seem like the most honest guy. I think he the is. most sincere guy. Yeah. And other times I feel like he's fucking with me. But he likes that, you know. Yeah. He likes putting the cat amongst the pigeons. You think? think you think so. it's intentional? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Provocative, let's say. Because, you know, he'll say some pretty interesting things and then he'll make, like, possibly, like, the most childish fart joke I've ever seen yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. And he, he, it's the same, you know, 10 or 15 people on Twitter replying. You're just like, I don't know, man. You want to be the intellectual. And it's, yeah, I don't know. Mm. He makes a lot of fart jokes, though, like, even on a kind of day-to-day basis, so. Now, is he being ironic with the fart jokes, or is he legitimately happy with them? I think he really likes them. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for fart jokes, you know. Fart jokes is a bit like McDonald's, you know. You always know what you're going to get, and it's just nice. I'll say this about fart jokes. They've been done so much, right? Yeah. That if you can find a unique angle on it, you're a fucking genius. See, that's probably what he's thinking, you see. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's yet to find that angle. Yeah, and I appreciate the fight, but maybe he should... digging there, you know? Okay, but you should tell him that he should write down a fart joke, put it in his drafts folder, come back to it. Yeah, leave it there. Leave it there. And then let it sit for 24 hours. Come back to it and see and if, if it's he's still, still good. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I feel like he doesn't do that. Like, Just pulls the trigger and not, not to bring it, like... Back to the ego that is me, but your fart jokes are much better. But I will, I will <laughs> write a joke, and if I will write a joke, and I'll sit on it for twenty four hours, and then I'll come back to it, and if I feel like it's still funny, how, how I'll push you, forward. I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do that. No, you're in the moment. Well, I don't really say that much funny stuff. So. See, like we go to my drafts, <laughs> drafts, fart jokes, drafts, fart jokes. Um. Nobody brings up the first or second Reich, and I find that's a shame. <laughs> See, I haven't gone with that yet, Charlie. I'm figuring it out. I feel like it could be. I, I, I really think that you should think very carefully before putting that out <laughs> into the sort of no. Ooh. <laughs> but what I've done with my with my Twitter is I've actually said so much annoying shit and weird shit that I feel like I can't get in trouble with it anymore. Mm-hmm. Basically bomb proof now. Yeah. You just sort of got a sealant on yourself. Yeah, like yeah. everybody goes, well, that's his Twitter. You know, yeah. he's obviously just being an asshole. <laughs> Charlie, I'll tell you the first time. I always knew of you. I was because of your name and of your results. And, uh, but I never knew much about you. Yeah. Until one day... Hmm. I came across a blog that you were writing for Canyon. And oh, that's a while ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was uh, it was when you had dropped out of the tour. Yeah. And you, you fucking blew my mind, dude, because you wrote exactly what it felt like hmm. to drop out of a race. Shit, isn't it? <laughs> but I feel... Again, to go back to the 
the school ground mm-hmm. going re- reacting from your insecurities yeah it's hard everybody feels these insecurities but mm-hmm. to actually be the first one to verbalize them mm-hmm. is a f- I, I mean to, to be conscious of your insecurities and actually put them down paper to pen or mm-hmm. computer or whatever mm-hmm. that was a ballsy move dude yeah. I mean, that was a really... And that's when I became a Wigalius fan. I was yeah. like, oh, this guy fucking gets it. I just couldn't be doing with writing if it wasn't what I really thought, you know? Mm. But, uh... Yeah. Did you get a bit of pop out of that one? Because that one... I mean, that was such a... Fu- All right, so for those who hadn't read it... Yeah, because it was quite... Like, it wasn't exactly... A, it wasn't like on cycling news, you know. No, it was a but, it was a quite bike a manufacturer's blog. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a pretty limited scope. I'm not even sure how I came across it. No, and quite a few people read it. So, yeah, but I think you know the 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 experience I had writing those blogs taught me a lesson for when I wrote the book. Yeah, your book, Domestic. Yeah, um, because. I think what's good about the book are the bits or why it's good I think is because Tom and I we just did it for the sake of doing it well Tom Southern Southern. yeah and we didn't think about you know some kind of marketing strategy or what what would be popular or you wrote what you knew was good yeah and you know the, 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 the only time I ever really thought about what anybody might think about it was when I held the first paper copy in my hand and I thought shit it's real what are they gonna think yeah because until then it was just we were just doing it yeah and I think things in general bike racing writing or whatever things just come better when you do it just for the sake of it you know yeah for the sake of doing it well yes well here here's the analogy I use and I've used it and I think that this podcast isn't nearly as good as your writing so don't I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to one up you no 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 but but you, this podcast free though, isn't it? It's damn free. Your so, book is so overly already, expensive. Yeah, you've already <laughs> you've already pumped me there. Already, so. But I feel like sometimes people get confused with successful and good. So you can say um, mm. in America, Pizza Hut. Yeah. They're the most successful pizza brand. Yeah. They've sold the most and make the most money. Mm. Nobody would ever say it's the best pizza in the in, no, in the world. That's really true. Uh, Justin Bieber makes the most money out of any musician in the world. But his music sucks. But his music sucks. That's really true. So, I don't think you're the kind of guy to fucking make Pizza Hut, man. No, no. You're not the kind of guy who's going to write a training diary for those who want to be more like professionals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. You're not that guy. So, I think, I think that's great that you and Tom, who I like quite a bit, Mm. uh, just you move forward you know mm. like I feel similar in this podcast and that mm. I appreciate when people like it yeah but I'm <clears throat> I'm just gonna make it how I wanna yeah yeah I, I don't actually have any problem at all with even people who didn't like my book yeah I just I prefer it that people would just say that they thought the book sucked than that I suck as a person you know have you? How long has it been out? Have you had time to get uh, criticism? Or? Uh, since June. Since June. But it's been fairly okay so far. I think. I think the kind of person to to read a book like that is going to be a fairly 
it's gonna be one of your your crowd, you know. Yeah. It's not gonna be the casual shithead who's. Yeah, yeah, but like what what I meant by that was that you know like it wasn't a political manifesto. Sure. And it wasn't um, it wasn't a part of my career that was for sale. So, you know, I wouldn't want people to judge me as a bike rider from the book. Mm. I'd just like them to judge the book and say that the book sucked. Yeah. If they want to, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I I tried to get the book because I I knew you were coming. Mm-hmm. I tried to get the book in time. It's on its way. I got it from Amazon. Yeah. So I, d- I don't know much about the book. So what can you tell me about the book? Well, I think that if you wanted like sort of sum up briefly what it was about, I think it's an attempt to sort of. Uh, Firstly, to explain the role of a domestique, or illustrate it through my experiences. And part, partly why I think that's actually quite a good time to do it, because I don't know if there's going to be any many more riders like I was. Not because I rode particularly fast, but riders who can have a kind of well-respected, generally, 12-year career and never win a race. Because the UCI I don't, yeah, just the way the sport's changing, you know. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to sort of explain what that role was, also because you know, in in England at the moment, there's so many new people mm. in the sport who haven't necessarily sort of learnt the sport through you know, like the old club system of going out riding with old guys. They come in at a certain age, and you know they don't people struggle to understand that role and then I think you know there's so much more to it than just you know bringing bottles yeah it, it's quite a sort of complicated thing you know so I thought it was it's cool an art form it's an art form to know you have to we have a guy on our team Candelario yeah and he's he's got to be one of the most underrated cyclists I know yeah the guy could do a bit of everything he crashed yeah. out here yeah yeah I saw that <clears throat> but to you have to have a real sense of speed yeah. and you have to be constantly aware mm. so like oh you know it, it's a bit of a crosswind here like not full crosswind mm. but it's just it's on we're all kind of pinned to the just left just knowing at you wouldn't yeah. it be great if somebody was off to the left well yeah. shit I should be on my guy like to yeah. just constantly be following your guy around the pack you're not mm. staying in front of him to to hurt him because that could be annoying yeah but you're just following him and then if some situation comes up you're instantly on point yeah i mean if if the people who listen to your podcast are like really hardcore cycling people mm-hmm. there's no end to the kind of things that a domestique can do because yeah. a domestique can like manipulate a bike race in practically any way you want to you know what's your proudest moment as a domestique my proudest moment was 2006 in the Giro and a big breakaway went away and there was nobody in it from liquid gas and I rode across the break a minute and a half with Pellizzotti and in the end he won the stage and he was on your wheel you, you, like, we, just, we just rode across to the break just hit out together yeah because we rode a bit on the front with the team and the whole peloton kind of like went to sleep because I just thought that what we were going to do all day and then we just went bang just kind of snuck across you didn't give them a chance to react what's that you didn't give them a chance to react no I I don't think anybody even realised it was happening before and then in the final of the race 
Axel Merckx went away on his own and I basically chased him down and then Frank Franco won the stage and in the paper the next day Axel's dad said that if he would have had a teammate like me mm. his, his son would have had a teammate he would have won that's great he said Axel's dad yeah and like yeah his old man <laughs> yeah <laughs> whoever that guy is yeah and for me that was like about as good as it could get that was yeah do you think you think that almost lasts longer than winning on your own because when somebody such with a prestige such as Axel's dad yeah kind of tips his hat towards you yeah that that's that's you as like not only as your result in the day but also your quality as a person like it's 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 your yeah it's, it's like your pedigree whereas maybe with a win it could be like oh that guy was a bit down on GC he got in the yeah and he mode. snuck away he snuck away yeah but like you know it I think it when you get recognition from like deep inside the yeah the sport like that yeah from people who really know yeah not to disrespect people who don't know but like you know like bloody Eddie Merckx you know sure. Then it's it's like having a kind of a tattoo of authenticity on you, you know. No, without without doubt, yeah. I have a, a picture I've saved. I went through this purging process where I, I threw away everything, so yeah. everything related. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't be bothered. I only have like uh, two things at home, I think, left. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I saved was a picture of Eddie Marks looking at me, and he's he took time to look at me. He's walking, yeah, and he's looking over his shoulder, yeah. And he's he's like giving me a second look. Yeah. And it's before the uh, under 23 year olds in Hamilton. Right. And he's giving me a second look. And I, I yeah, I, I when I re, when I announced my retirement, I went through a big purging process. Mm. And uh, some of it I might regret later. But you know, the only thing I regret from that kind of you know the objects and stuff is that I don't have one jersey left from every season that I rode. Because I just gave everything away. I almost threw that away. I yeah. have a box. I have a box. I talked about it earlier in the podcast. Yeah. On a previous episode was that uh, I was going through this process. I I used to collect every. I would uh, get every race bike I've ever from every year. Right. I'd, I'd uh, nip the race bike. Yeah. I'd find a way to nick off of it. Yeah. Make him disappear. Sure, sure. Yeah. And uh, I gave. I finally uh, one day and then the height of my back problems and depression yeah. I came in my garage I, I couldn't be fucked I, I I was like what am I building am I building like a museum to myself yeah. so I I opened up the garage and I, I just gave them away you know? yeah. and then when I retired I started to do the same thing with the, with my clothing and I would do that yeah I would just take one jersey in the bag yeah. from every team every yeah. season just throw it throw it in this container yeah <clears throat> And I started to throw them away. I started to toss them. And I, I couldn't quite do it yet. Uh, it's just... If I have children, but I don't have one, if I have one, I just don't want them to think that their dad was this person who collected a museum of himself. Yeah. I mean, I... I, it's not, I, I saw a thing recently about Bahamontes. Yeah. And there's a picture of him in his office. And he's got a massive, like, larger-than-life picture of himself on the wall <laughs> in his office. Yeah. On the wall. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought it was fantastic. Have you ever been to a cyclist house? 
who has pictures of them winning races or no but I, I've seen a lot of cyclists who have pictures of themselves winning races as their wallpaper on their computer you know on the home screen there pretty high average that isn't it I have a picture of uh, my wallpaper is a picture of a shark with uh, dynamite in his mouth and <laughs> and uh, I, I mean I'll show you I have it on my phone as well it's my favorite photo oh you got it all synced yeah look at that he says look at this shark yeah read it out loud for everybody look at this shark oh shit uh, my password for no. everybody reading is 99999 <laughs> it's a very complex he doesn't give a fuck his mouth is full of explosives and he has two hammers <laughs> he can make it on his own <laughs> how does he hold the hammers though he hasn't even got fingers or anything I don't know but he can make it on his own Charlie he's just grinding out yeah He's got several pairs of teeth, hasn't he? He's got like yeah, he's got layers. Of them, yeah. He's got layers. Of mm. it, the shark just kind of sums it up for me. If you have the right tools, the key is getting the tools. Yeah. If you have the hardware, tool. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I see the I see the cyclists who have photos of them and in maybe the greatest moments of their career, and they'd be constantly reminded of it I don't know like to me maybe it, it diminishes it to me it maybe makes it seem so simple yeah I've just never been really sentimental about that kind of stuff why why yeah huh did you ever win a race oh team time trials team time trials mm. you never you never got sentimental I mean obviously you're a little sentimental about the, the Eddie Marks thing totally there's a lot of stuff but you know I can be more sentimental about it now because it's done. Do you feel it's like almost like? Because I think when you when you when you're still doing it, you don't want to kind of let any kind of weakness into yourself. You know, if I would have had pictures of my successes around the house when I was still racing, sure. When it was going shit, and I came home early from a training ride, I just feel miserable looking at these yeah. pictures of these glorious moments, and I just feel like I. I'd be worthless, you know. Like here I am. I came home early from training, and the, yeah. you know, it's just. You feel like your fucking career is just one big Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Like somehow I've managed to get myself to this level, and nobody knows that I can't. I'm I'm really bad. Like I don't know. Like I've just happened to have good days at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. But uh. Yeah, I think there's a lot of psychology involved when you're a writer. How do you balance that as a director? Do you try to play psychologist or do you let everybody on their own? No, I don't think I play psychologist, but I try and take each rider individually. You take a guy like, um, like Danielson, it's pretty, I'm not telling stories out of school, but he's, he's even himself in the press said he's gone to sports psychologist yeah. and done all these things. Yeah. Is he? But he he also seems incredibly self motivated. He seems yeah. like a um, like a boxer almost, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's in front of everybody's eyes the engine that the guy's got. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Father but, showed me his power test before the tour. Right. It was. It's math. Retarded. Yeah, and you know the he's got. Uh, He's super motivated. Yes. And I think he can be a bit fragile at times. 
And I think he can be a victim of his own motivation at times, you know? Training too hard, you mean? No, but I think more on a psychological level that it just becomes a bit too intense. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, not just speaking about Tom, but in general, I think that for most athletes it's good to try and avoid have-to situations, you know? I have to do this, or I've got to do this. Because then things stop coming naturally, and, you know... Like if you think of a tennis player who's serving for Wimbledon, if he stands there and serves the same way he serves in training every day, he'll just ace it. Mm-hmm. But if he stands there and starts thinking about how much money he's riding on this service and this and that and the other, he's going to fluff it, you know? Yeah. So I think the peripheral stuff can get in the way of like the action. And on a bike, it's left, right, left, right. It's dead simple, you know? But one, but what if the peripheral stuff's almost what motivates you? Like sometimes, yeah, that's sometimes. I, I remember in those moments in the race where it comes down to X factor. Like it really comes down to whether or not you're gonna quit. Yeah. Sometimes the only thing that would motivate me was peripheral. Like yeah. I would think about how I would rather die on my bike than this guy drop me. Yeah, yeah, like because you hate the guy. Yeah. I would make up reasons. I'd make full narratives. Yeah, yeah. But like the the, the the some of the stories that you tell yourself as a as an athlete is quite it's amazing. You know, and like the music that ends up going around in your head on like long rainy days is just weird. Yeah. But I think that those things are kind of a bit more organic than like constructing things around yourself to like, you know, make yourself perform. I don't think that that can work. The guy like Danielson, he does a lot of like um, promotion, you know? Mm. Maybe he has a book or yeah. a ride or whatever, you know? Do you think. Do you think he does that to pump himself up? Like. No, I think he just really enjoys doing those things. He loves like just talking to people. Yeah. I have to drag him away sometimes, you know, because we're going to be late for something or whatever, because he's just stopping and talking to people it's funny because I have a podcast but I socially I could be so awkward you know yeah, yeah. but Tom's not like that at all he's just totally like, did you see him in the press conference today he was brilliant mm. and that was just that was Tom the best Tom and he just but got I think beaten. he's socially awkward around his peers I think when you have a group of people who will show him infinite respect because of what he's done athletically yeah I think he's really comfortable yeah but I, I think when he he's around people who he's not quite sure of it's quite insecure yeah but you know Tom Danielson is just like all the other riders he's just yeah. a child in the playground yeah we're all yeah. just it's just a big playground you know yeah so tell me about um Something that never gets talked about is the, is you, and you mentioned it earlier, is the coming home early from a training ride. Oh. How, how much, I mean, it's not only gutting, but psychologically taxing. Oh, jeez. Why would you come, I know why I would come home from a train ride early. You tell your missus. Because the, yeah. You tell your missus, ah, uh, honey, it's going to be a long one today. Yeah. We'll be out the door by eight thirty. Yeah. It'll be about six hours. Yeah, 
well, you I'm come not, home at noon. Yeah, and, yeah, but you know, you th- th- there's all kinds of different phases to this, isn't there? Because the seeds can already get planted when you plan to leave early and you don't. Yeah. And that shit drags out, you know? When did it first start happening for you? When I first uh, stopped training with the training group. Because that was always a good thing for me. You get out tick tock, you know? Yeah, you get out with the mates. Yeah, and like sometimes you'd end up having to motor pace to get to the square on time, otherwise they'd leave without you. But that was like just the thing, you know? Where were you living at this time? Uh, near Milan, near Varese in Italy. So and, you had and we used to yeah. meet... Nine uh, nine o'clock in the summer and ten in the winter in the in the piazza in Galera. So you had a little chain gang. You had to go out. It was with. A fucking massive chain gang of like lots of really good riders at the time. Yeah. So, and then I realised that like my whole, and it wasn't like a super phase for me, you know. Like I was riding with a smaller team, and I was just. What team was this? Denardi, mm. and kind of just sort of letting go of dreams, you know. Mm. And then I realised after a while that my whole focus was like just on getting to the square on time. And then I kind of gave a shit about what happened after that. And then if you have a big enough training group, you just trundle around. Sure. No and you've averaged 108 watts for the whole day and then just... But you feel great because you've done 150Ks, you know? Sure, sure. So then I tried to change that. I'm doing more specific training on my own and stuff. But bloody hell when it's a bad day. The jobs you can find oh, oh, oh. around the house to put off training are just endless. It's amazing the procrastinations. Oh my god! You've never looked. You've never looked at the siding of the house twice, but today, yeah, it needs to really be repainted, doesn't yeah. it? It looks just a shit. Bit, yeah. Or you wash your bike before you go out training, or and. And your girl's not going to tell you that the side of the house doesn't need to be repainted. She's actually kind of all excited about it. She's rubbing her hands together, yeah, yeah. And then when you're out riding, you know, there's there's all kinds of phases to it, you know? Yeah. There's the kind of hopeful phase at the beginning where you think it's still going to happen. Then you start making excuses for yourself. Mm. And it all gets really big, you know, like, I wouldn't want to put my health at risk. And it's like, what what are you talking about? It's the catch-all, right? It's the catch-all. I notice that all the time now, like, uh... Uh, Mike Friedman, he's gonna drop out of the race now. Yeah. Yeah, after his crash. After his crash, but yeah. I say this as a uh, a loving friend of Mike Friedman. I know he can carry on. Yeah. I've seen guys carry on, but it's very much a ah. Uh, oh, well, it's not worth it if we're gonna do Tour of Alberta. Yeah. And I tell it. I tell him like everybody here is doing Tour of Alberta. Just get on with it. Yeah. It. I think the your health at risk is it's such a clever catch. Just, yeah, and then you start you know this thing. Well, you know it's better if I rest well today and then I go again oh, tomorrow. Because can you imagine tomorrow I'm gonna be so rested, I'm gonna be bursting, yeah, yeah, bursting with energy. But then there's a time limit to that too, you see. Because then if you go too long, and you haven't pulled the plug yet, you mm-hmm. neither fish nor meat. Fish meat. I've never heard that before. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, and then, uh, and then you're gonna turn around, and then the ride home can be bloody long. And you usually because bonk, you know you usually failed at, at the end point. of that. Too. You know you failed at yeah. this point. Here's the thing I always found was uh, the word tomorrow. Yeah. The word tomorrow was so powerful for me yeah. because tomorrow is when that's gonna change things. Yeah. 
And here's the brilliant thing about tomorrow. It's so fucking close, but it's not right now. Yeah. Tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up real early. I'm going to go to the gym real quick, do a bit of core. Yeah. And I'm going to get on that ride. I'm gonna it's going to feel perfect. Yeah, everything's going to be great. Tomorrow. And you can promise that to yourself. You know, someone said something to me this summer I thought was really interesting. was that um, was I was saying something about, you know, like riders complaining. And this person said, well, actually, you really want them to complain. Because when an athlete stops complaining, that means that they've looked at themselves and said that they couldn't do any better. And then the hope for ever improving is kind of gone in a way, you know? Do you remember who said that? Yeah. JV. God damn it. He hurts my feelings with how brilliant he is sometimes. Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes I really want to feel like I'm... I'm quicker and smarter than he is. But no, but he's a smart guy. <laughs> you know what a great thing JB said to me when I was um, I was riding for him? Maybe 25 or 26, and I was a very analytical guy. Hmm. I had to have 1 plus 1 equals 2, yeah, and, yeah. and everything had to flow in this Boxes, chart. Yeah. Yes, I was very much of a number-based person. Yeah. And he finally said to me one day, he's like, it doesn't matter how you feel. Because he... We go to a race and I feel good. I wouldn't, I, feel I, wouldn't, good. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do as great as I would, could, yeah. and then he would ask, "What happened, man?" I was like, "I this and that. I don't know." And then he would just say, "Like at a certain point, Mike, it just doesn't matter how you feel. You just have to get on with it." Just and at the it. time, as an analytical guy, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? It doesn't matter how you feel. But you grew up like with Italian culture, and Italian culture is very—it was—it's not a technology-driven culture. Yeah. It's a very uh, old school. I went to uh, so I went to Italy when I was nineteen. Yeah. Bergamasca Forte. Yeah. Uh, I think at the time it was like Gaspari and yeah. Uh, Matteo Carrara. Carrara. Yeah. Uh, Carrara. Yeah. Do you remember Quella? Uh, Quella. Giampaolo Giampaolo oh, yeah. yeah 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 and I mean I'm fresh out of America I mean they gave me one week heads up to this uh. nah I mean that was before SRM before power meters but even then as an American because we have no we have no history in the sport we have no culture of the sport yeah, yeah. so any technology or any kind of thing we're, we're, we're pretty quick to accept yeah I, I came over to uh, Bergamo and I had a bottle of uh, like hot sauce, you know. Yeah. And the the Italians were freaking just, out. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's grasso. Yeah. It's grasso. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I get a bit nostalgic when I think I see like modern riders training programs. Yeah. And then I remember what my Italian training programs were like. It like almost looked like a score from a you know piece of music. Yeah. Ag- Agile. Ritmo medio, like all they use like yeah, words, yeah, they, yeah. words to describe what That's you would do. I've never thought of it like and that. And now it's true. all just boxes, you know. Yeah. I was. I was Ride agile. <laughs> Ride with agility. I mean, but you can feel it, you know. Like you know what that means, like a, a little hummingbird. Yeah, yeah. It's like saying, just like yeah, maybe just ride a little bit of high cadence today. Yeah. Land on the pedals, high cadence. Yeah. I uh, I was so out of my element though. Yeah, it's hardcore. I uh, I started convincing the team that I would, I, would, I needed to train longer. And what I'd really do 
as I'd ride right outside of Bergamo. I'd go to the top of this mountain. Yeah. And I'd lay on the side of the ground in one of those car parks. Yeah. And I'd just go to bed. Yeah. I'd just take a nap. And they thought that this, this wild American guy was just training for hours. Just on hammering it all yeah, yeah. yeah. Until one day. Someone called you asleep. The team comes by for a training ride and I'm on the side of the ground sleeping. <laughs> after that, I wasn't allowed to go train it on my own after that. Jeez. <laughs> Caught red-handed. Passed out on the side of the road like a fucking animal. I might as well have been dead. Jeez. Huh. I, I wonder... I wonder if that can like even happen now, because you know that was before internet and internet yeah. and Skype and and email. Yeah. I wonder if that kind of isolation feeling that I had, where I really felt like I was shot to the moon, because I, I mean I didn't speak Italian. Yeah. I, I, I mean I knew nothing, because it was all before because the like you with the Verona World Championships, huh. in the uh, Junior Worlds I attacked with maybe a lap and a half to go. Yeah. I got off the front with uh, Christoph Kern. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. I remember him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, on the last lap, Canago bridged up to us. Yeah. And uh, he dropped me in the final time. But there was no time. That's no dishonor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially back then. Yeah. Uh, but there was an Italian guy in the... In the uh, it was Seiko, Claudio Corti. Yeah, yeah. Corti. Yeah. Of course. But but the Colombian team, yeah. <clears throat> and he uh, he came to the hotel that night and he asked if I wanted to ride professionally in Europe and I said sure yeah and uh, I didn't hear from him for months and then he he called in December and said do you want to turn pro with Saeco and I said yeah of course why wouldn't I I'm 19 years old yeah. how old could it be I'm 18 now but I'll be 19 in a couple months sure he asked if I had a friend uh, that would want to come with me because you know you can get pretty lonely in mm. Europe by yourself. So I said, yeah. And uh, at that moment, Danny Pate was over at my house playing video games. <laughs> so I said, uh, I have this guy, Danny Pate. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's fairly handy on the bicycle. Uh, and he said, yeah, ask him. So I put the phone down <laughs> and I said, Danny. Hey, Danny. Da- you think you're joking, but that's literally how the conversation. I mean, that's how it worked back then, yeah? You want to go pro? Yeah. Danny, do you want to go to Italy next week? Ride pro with Seiko? Yeah. Sounds great. Great. Tickets on their way. Fuck. Yeah. I show up to Italy. show up to Bergamo. And they say, bloody hell, you're only 18 years old. You can't be professional yet. We have to put you on the amateur team. Jeez. It's like, you know you guys called me. I didn't call you. <laughs> So instantly, like, Pate and I were split up. So, yeah. like, we went from living in this hotel outside of uh, Lago de Iseo. Iseo, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great place. Lots of nice girls in the summer, though. We weren't there in the summer. We were in the December, Ooh. unfortunately. Oh, but, I mean, that kind of weirdness, I feel like, just doesn't exist no, anymore. No, 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 no. I mean, it was a fucking adventure. Well, you know, when I went to France when I was 17, I got there and I didn't even know I was coming. Because oh, we'd exchanged letters by post. <laughs> and he'd agreed, but he didn't realize that I was actually coming then. He just kind of figured, ah. Oh. And, and everyone was like, who the fuck is this guy? What team was that? Vendée U. 
on the hill is famous, yeah. Yeah. How did you secure that? Uh, Graham Jones, who's an ex-pro in England. I know that name. So yeah. yeah. He uh, he raced with Bernardo when he was when they were pros. And the guy was interested. And then basically Graham made a phone call, and that was. That was it. Yeah, but they, it wasn't very sort of clear, you know, like specific. So I just turned up, and they were like, "Okay, <laughs> who is this guy?" So. And it was the same thing for me. It was an amateur team and I was still a junior. Yeah. So I just lived in the house and went to the races on my own with the car and just... They just gave you the keys? Yeah. They just said, okay, good luck. Yeah, went on my own. Bon chance. Yeah. So... Do you think those adventures still exist like that? To that level? I think that just out of logistics, the, the gap is closer. when You're so far from home when you're in the middle of France. I mean, you just buy yourself a Ryanair ticket and make a phone call on your mobile phone and you're home. I mean, it's just not, it's not it's the not same. It's not feeling of isolation. No. I remember calling my dad from uh, Iseo. And you can hardly hear them on the end of the phone. Yeah, and I had to go to the, the tobacco store and figure out how to buy a phone card. A card and, and scratch off tobacco. Sure, yeah. And he had to try to explain it to me and my pitch been fucking Italian. And yeah. Claudio Corti would come over uh, like once a week and he would just hand Danny and I a fistful of Lira. <laughs> he, he, I don't, I never fully understood it, but he would come over with Lira and cookies. <laughs> remember those like, uh, do you remember those big bags? Like they came in plastic bags, those yeah. Italian cookies. They were like dessert cookies. Yeah, like, yeah. He'd come over with three or four cookies. He would give us a fat test. Was it like an informal one or like? Because there's the informal one, isn't there? There's the little pinch and oh. He'd give us the informal one every time, but maybe once yeah. every two or three weeks, the doctor would come over and give us a little pinch test. Uh, offer to write us a prescription for whoever knows what, because we were living with a, a Moldovan guy at the time, Igor Pugacci. Yeah, I raced with him. Do you remember Pugacci? Yeah. yeah, I heard a story about Igor and. An American who was there and a washing machine. Must have been Pete. It couldn't have been anybody else. I was because and apparently like Igor had bought the washing machine. And he didn't want the American guy using it when he was away, so he took the tube with him, you know, in in his suitcase. Okay. Okay. So so okay. that there was this brand new washing machine, yeah. but it was just completely handicapped okay. and it couldn't. So yeah, so you can verify that. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, Pugacci was the cheapest motherfucker on the planet. So I think yeah. what happened was. Bugaji had rented this apartment in Iseo. Yeah. And the courtier had obviously said, like, oh, if you put up a couple of these Americans, maybe I'll kick you a few hundred, yeah. you know, beer or whatever at the time. But uh, Igor was really concerned with us running up the utilities bill. So he would, he always turned <laughs> the hot water heater off. Yeah. So he would, he would try to teach us to take a shower by uh, put, turning the hot water heater on. Uh, rinsing down, turning the water off, uh, and then doing yeah, doing okay. the soap, yeah, and, and then, then, then yeah. back on, yeah, yeah. Maybe he was an environmentalist. He was a forward thinking. He was the first green, <laughs> the first green Moldavian. <laughs> I tell you this: the first night though, we moved into Bugacci's place. 
I mean, the first night, I mean, we felt like we'd been shot to the moon. Yeah. We don't know when we're going to come home. We don't know how we get to, we, we know nothing. Yeah. We're in this uh, small room with two beds, and we're unloading our stuff, and Bugatti comes into the uh, room with a needle in his arm and this big surgical tubing and a, uh, and a vial above his head. It's, it's a drip. He's doing his own drip. Yeah. And he's asking us, uh, uh, pollo? Pollo. Chicken. Yeah, he wants to know if we want chicken for dinner. <laughs> I mean, we found out now at the time, for everybody's listening, it was esophosphenate, which is, I mean, it's nothing. It's 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 a sugar. it's sugar. But you have to imagine that at the time, being eighteen years old, quite the impact. Yeah. We we went to bed, not quite sure what the fuck we had gotten ourselves into. Should have googled it. <laughs> <laughs> One time, Igor, he got his house, uh, his house, his bike stolen from the local cafe he went to the local cafe and got nicked and he came home walking in his cleats <laughs> <laughs> what a dignity stripper <laughs> and uh, he told us and you know we, we quite hadn't because we there's two Americans in the same place there wasn't a huge need to learn Italian but we'd gotten that he, he had gotten his bike stolen because he came home with no bike. Because he came home with no bike. He seemed very upset about this fact. <laughs> Probably. I mean, we lived in some back-ass village of Iseo, too. Like, yeah. I mean, this fucker walked for, like, at least five kilometers. In what a dignity stripper. Oh, he he must have felt... He couldn't have felt lower. I mean, it's like walking with a puncture. Oh, it's worse than, like, the walk home from, you know, at 6 a.m. from a bar, isn't it? Yeah. So... He told us this, and Peyton and I had taken it in and told him it sucks. But just being Peyton and I, we had started to make jokes about other things, but Igor doesn't speak English. So we were laughing about something completely separate. He thought you were laughing at him. Mm. He came in the room, he started swinging. He started, he jumped on top of Danny and started punching him in the chest. So I football tackled Danny. I football tackled Igor. We had to call truce. We locked the door. <laughs> <laughs> Last I heard, he was riding for a Grand Fondo. He's still riding? Yeah, Grand Fondo. He must be like 50. Yeah. It's time, buddy. Yeah. I appreciate you coming out. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So slashed and torn. Why?